Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. As always, I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and along with Nachi Gupta, we'll be talking you through the August 2017 issue, Emergency Management of Renal and Genital Urinary Trauma, Best Practice Updates. Wow, what a transition from chest pain to GU trauma. Thanks, Editorial Board, for keeping us on our toes. This month's issue is authored by Drs. Brian and Shiva Kramani of the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, and it was edited by Dr. Bryce of Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Dr. Shawkett of Coney Island Hospital. Thank you, team, for your efforts in putting this together. GU trauma is all too pervasive and unfortunately often unrecognized. In terms of raw numbers, several studies estimate that GU trauma is present in nearly 5-10% to of all abdominal trauma patients. When you combine this with the fact that patients suffering GU injuries tend to be sicker than cohorts without them, and that missed GU injuries are associated with increased morbidity and mortality, stakes are quite high. Oh, and one last quick point here. The long-term sequela of renal and GU injuries are nothing to scoff at. Hypertension, CKD, erectile dysfunction, incontinence, fistula, and recurrent pilo? Yeah, no thanks. And if you're not convinced yet, let me throw one more piece of data at you. In one case series from a specialized trauma center, 20 to 25% of all bladder and urethral injuries associated with pelvic fractures were missed initially. In the era of advanced imaging, that's pretty astonishing. Yeah, that's pretty bad. So where did doctors Brian and Shiwak Ramani come up with their recommendations for this month's issue? Well, for this month's issue, they reviewed 383 articles, five core evidence-based and consensus guidelines, and the guidelines of the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma. As we go through their recommendations, keep in mind, though, that most of these articles are case reports, expert opinion, and single institution retrospective case series. That's true, but I can only imagine that a prospective trial on GU injuries would be a tad bit difficult. Fair enough. Let's dive in with some epidemiology. So who suffers from GU trauma? Well, the easy answer is everybody, but the population definitely skews towards young males, with 80% of GU trauma patients being under 40 and almost 75% being male. In terms of types of injuries, 90% of GU trauma is caused by blunt abdominal trauma, like MVCs. Not surprisingly, the kidneys are the most commonly injured organ, followed by the ureters and then the bladder. Interestingly, in the setting of penetrating trauma, and that's mostly gunshot wounds and stabbings, the ureter is actually much more frequently damaged than it is during blunt trauma. So let's break this one down organ by organ. As we just mentioned, the kidneys are most commonly injured during blunt trauma. It's actually not the direct trauma that causes the damage, but the rapid deceleration. Injuries can range from simple contusions to complete shattering of the kidney. High energy forces may even disrupt the critical vascular supply to and from the kidney. Ureteral injury is most commonly seen in the setting of penetrating trauma, with roughly 5% of penetrating wounds to the abdomen involving the ureter. When the ureter is damaged in the setting of blunt trauma, be on the lookout for other significant bony injuries to the pelvis and the spine. Bladder injuries range from mural contusions to complete rupture, resulting from the extreme compressive forces on the pelvis. When the bladder does rupture, it's classified as either intraperitoneal rupture, aka a rupture of the superior dome with urine draining into the peritoneum, or extraperitoneal, aka a rupture of the inferior aspect of the bladder in which the urine drains into the pelvis. Most ruptures occur intraperitoneally. Continuing down the GU tract, next up are the male and female genitalia. Recall from medical school that the male urethra is divided into two segments, the posterior and anterior segments. The external anterior segment is much more likely to be injured secondary to penetrating trauma, whereas the posterior segment is usually injured secondary to blunt trauma to the pelvis. As you might expect, the male urethra is far more commonly injured than the female urethra. Even further down the male GU tract, we're left with the testicles and the penis. Penile fractures occur during intercourse, secondary to blunt force compressing the erect penis, leading to rupture of the tunica albuginea. 
Similarly, blunt trauma to the testicles can lead to rupture of the tunica albuginea and extrusion of the seminiferous tubules. And don't forget about the oh-so-painful but uncommon injury patterns such as contusions, avulsions, amputations, and even zipper injuries. In contrast, there isn't a ton to say about injuries to the female genitalia. Just remember to keep the female genitalia injury on the differential in any patient with pelvic trauma, even if the injuries may be somewhat obscured by normal appearing external anatomy. Let me quickly review the renal injury grading system since this will play a key role throughout this issue. A grade 1 renal injury is a contusion with a subcapsular hematoma. A grade 2 injury is a superficial laceration with a perirenal hematoma. A grade 3 injury is a deep laceration without urinary extravasation. A grade 4 injury is a laceration with urinary extravasation or a main renal artery or vein injury with contained hemorrhage. And lastly, a grade 5 injury is either a shattered kidney or an avulsion of the renal hilum with devascularization. That's a lot to take in, so be sure to check out Table 4 and Figure 2 in the issue for more review. Alright, so that wraps up anatomy. Moving on, it's time for some ambulances. We're talking pre-hospital care. As always, history taking is crucial as understanding the mechanism will help the ED team make the correct decision with regards to testing, treatment, and disposition. In terms of actual field treatment, in the case of severe pelvic trauma, Drs. Brian and Shiwak Romani recommend strongly considering a pelvic binder in patients with severe GU trauma as there's very little downside. This isn't something I've seen all too frequently, but it seems quite reasonable given how serious a pelvic hemorrhage can be. And once the patient arrives in the ED, care begins with a careful history, making sure to obtain as much history as possible from EMS. Getting a clear history of a rapid deceleration injury may be suggestive of trauma to the upper GU tract that would not be otherwise clear from the patient's physical exam. With respect to blunt trauma, make sure to ascertain the mechanism, whether or not restraints were used, and the nature of the deceleration. Believe it or not, they've actually studied it, and seatbelt use and airbag deployment are correlated with a decreased rate of nephrectomy. For penetrating trauma, make sure to determine the caliber of the projectile used and the dimensions of any weapons. Prior renal history, including pre-existing structural urologic pathology, such as hydro, tumors, cyst, strictures, they may necessitate a more intensive workup. And pre-existing renal function is also key to determine, as trauma-associated AKI is a very real risk. That last point is super important. Trauma patients are at risk for hypotension, rhabdomyolysis, and contrast-induced nephropathy, so their kidneys, even if not damaged by the accident itself, may be facing a serious insult. Exactly. Oh, and one last point before moving on to the physical. Don't forget to assess for the ability to void dysuria and hematuria. The inability to void may be due to the, quote, reflex retention, which can be seen in patients with lower GU trauma. So now that we've gathered some history from the patient and from EMS, let's get into the physical exam. All trauma patients must be fully undressed in order to identify subtle findings, It seems silly to even have to say this, but GU injuries are often missed. For upper GU trauma, keep in mind that lethal injuries such as kidney trauma may present without any physical exam findings, such as flank tenderness, ecchymosis, or rib fractures, which are not uncommon findings in abdominal trauma. This just reinforces the point that we just made, that you really need a good history to raise your index of suspicion. For lower GU trauma, you may see signs of concomitant injuries such as lumbosacral spine and pelvic fractures. Abdominal distension may point to bladder rupture with urinary extravasation. On the contrary, bladder distension may point to urethral injury and then ability to void. And blood at the meatus, genital hematomas, bruising, and swelling may also be seen with urethral trauma. What about the often discussed, rarely appreciated, quote, high-riding prostate that the American College of Surgeons and ATLS recommend testing for? Great question. The digital rectal exam for high-riding prostate is classically taught to diagnose a urethral transection. However, its utility has not clearly been demonstrated in the literature. 
In two studies, 0 of 7 and 1 of 41 patients with urethral disruptions had a high-riding prostate. Nonetheless, it remains in the ATLS guidelines for now. The last part of the GU physical exam is an evaluation for scrotal and penile injuries. Penile fractures often present with significant bruising and swelling, and in extreme cases can present with an eggplant deformity. Definitely check out the image of the eggplant deformity pictured in figure three. For sure check it out. It looks so, so, so painful. For scrotal injuries, look for tenderness, swelling, ecchymosis, and lacerations. Be careful if there is significant swelling to the scrotum, as this may preclude a thorough testicular exam. Okay, so that wraps up the physical. Let's talk diagnostic studies. First up, the urinalysis. The UA should be performed on all patients with abdominal trauma. Let me repeat that. The urinalysis should be performed on all abdominal trauma patients. And it shouldn't be just any UA. It should ideally be the first spontaneously voided sample, as this has the highest sensitivity for GU trauma. On the UA, microscopic hematuria is defined as 5 red blood cells per high-powered field, whereas gross hematuria generally occurs between 30 to 50 RBCs per high-powered field. The latter is really important, as gross hematuria is the single best indicator of GU injury and can be found in up to 90% of renal injuries. Any patient with either gross or microscopic hematuria who is hypotensive definitely warrants further imaging of the GU tract. That being said, lack of hematuria absolutely does not rule out GU injuries. In one series of almost 400 patients with grades 2 through 4 renal injuries, 21% had no hematuria. That's kind of terrifying considering that often there are no indicators of renal injury on physical exam. Well, this just drives home our previous point that the history from both the patient and EMS is absolutely critical. It's also important to point out that in penetrating trauma, there's no correlation between the amount or even presence of hematuria and the degree of injury. So all of this begs the obvious question, can we use the UA to guide imaging decisions? Although there's no clear-cut answer, the American College of Radiology has published an expert consensus recommendation that can help guide your practice. According to their criteria, the following populations are appropriate candidates for imaging. Any patient with blunt abdominal trauma and gross hematuria, or any patient with blunt abdominal trauma, shock, and microscopic hematuria. These same recommendations support the use of CT in the absence of hematuria, but with blunt abdominal trauma and a rapid deceleration injury, or direct flank trauma or signs of flank trauma on exam, and the presence of upper abdominal and lower thoracic penetrating trauma. CT imaging is the gold standard in assessing renal and GU trauma. All expert guidelines recommend an immediate IV contrast CT scan in those with concern for GU trauma because of its ability to detect, localize, and characterize injuries. When ordering a CT scan, keep in mind though that modern CT scanners are so efficient that a single scan may miss significant injuries to the renal pelvis, collecting system, and even ureter. And this occurs because the images are often collected before the contrast has enhanced the renal parenchyma. This is especially true for ureteral injuries. One study found that 80% of ureteral injuries were missed initially, only to later be discovered on delayed imaging. In a second study, one-third of patients with high-grade renal injuries had their injuries missed due to the absence of delayed excretory CT images. For this reason, delayed imaging is a must. And when we say delayed imaging, we're specifically referring to a 10-minute delayed CT of the abdomen and pelvis to rule out suspected ureteral injury. And what about the other imaging studies like the retrograde urethrogram, CT cystography, and intravenous pilogram? Good point. A retrograde urethrogram should be performed prior to blind insertion of a urinary catheter with any concern for urethral injury, suggested by blood at the meatus, pelvic fracture, inability to urinate, significant pelvic swelling, or ecchymosis. 
CT stesography, which is performed by instilling 350 mL of dilute contrast into the bladder via Foley, is indicated when there's gross hematuria with pelvic fluid or a pelvic fracture, with gross hematuria without other explanation, with microscopic hematuria with a pelvic fracture, with difficulty voiding and suprapubic pain with any hematuria, and with any penetrating injuries of the buttocks, pelvis, and lower abdomen with hematuria. Lastly, IVP is really only performed perioperatively on unstable patients in the OR. I think the logistics of the retrograde urethrogram are worth going through since this is something all emergency physicians should be able to do. The first step in performing the retrograde urethrogram is to gently stretch the penis over the thigh and perform a scout image. Next, instill contrast into the meatus. Lastly, perform an abdominal radiograph to evaluate for contrast extravasation along the urethral course to check for disruption. Lack of contrast in the bladder indicates complete disruption. Despite its simple nature, the retrograde urethrogram has extremely high sensitivities and specificities. Make sure to check out figure 5 on page 9 of this month's issue for some great representative images. But what if there's already a Foley in place? It's actually not a problem. If this is the case, you can insert a pediatric Foley beside the already present Foley and inject contrast around it, as I just described a second ago. In the case of urethral disruption with marked bladder distension, you should immediately place a suprapubic catheter for bladder decompression. Let me finish off the imaging section with a brief mention of ultrasound. The FAST exam can be used to help identify intraperitoneal bladder rupture, but it has poor sensitivity. It can also be used to evaluate for penile fractures and testicular injuries. All right, so that wraps up diagnostic testing. Remember that CT scanning is the gold standard and that delayed imaging is required for a complete evaluation. Let's get started on treatment. Let's start out by touching on the various methods of catheterization and urinary diversion. Although Foley catheterization is typically a relatively simple procedure and is often required in critically ill trauma patients, the decision to place a catheter isn't always so easy. The biggest fear, of course, is worsening an already present urethral injury. Doctors Bryant and Shevakramani recommend that blind catheter placement should generally be avoided. However, if Foley placement is necessary, blind placement is unlikely to cause additional harm. If you attempt and are unable to pass the Foley, you should immediately abandon the attempt in favor of urethral imaging, use of a guide wire, or suprapubic catheterization. Suprapubic catheterization is rarely indicated, though, and is more or less reserved for severe cases of bladder, urethral, or genital injury. may also be used in those with pelvic fractures associated with urethral injury who are immediately going to the OR for a procedure. A lot of these decisions are heavily debated in the urologic community, so it's very reasonable to leave the decision up to your friendly urologist. In even more rare cases, especially those of complex trauma, ureteral stents and percutaneous nephrostomy tubes may be needed. But just as with the decision to place a suprapubic catheter, these decisions will of course be made with your urologic colleagues, so we won't go into it here. Yeah, and these are often complex decisions that definitely involve not only the urologist, but also a multidisciplinary trauma team. This same group will likely also help guide your ultimate management and disposition, specifically with regard to direct renal trauma. Even though as an ED physician, you ultimately won't be taking the patient to surgery, it's important to understand the evidence-based guidelines to advocate for the best course of action for your patient. Definitely. So generally, most grade 1 to 3 renal injuries can be managed non-operatively, whereas grades 4 and 5 often require intervention. Ureteral injuries can typically be treated with stenting. Intraperitoneal bladder ruptures generally require operative intervention, whereas extraperitoneal ruptures can usually be managed expectantly by placing a Foley and allowing bladder rest. Penile fracture and testicular rupture, on the other hand, always require immediate urologic consultation and likely immediate repair. 
Repairing a fractured penis can not only restore function and cosmesis, but can also expediently evaluate for other urethral injuries. Early intervention for testicular rupture leads to lower rates of testicular necrosis and orchectomy. And although it's still a very young and evolving field, interventional radiology is playing an ever-expanding role. Angiography can both evaluate and control hemorrhage via embolization in those who are hemodynamically stable. I'm pretty sure it will continue to play a larger and larger role as the technology continues to improve. For sure, even if most patients with renal trauma aren't being operated on or intervened on, expert consensus still supports admitting all renal injuries, regardless of the grade. In addition, IV fluids should be given to maintain adequate urine output. And those with higher grade injuries should have their hematocrit tested serially, along with ongoing monitoring of urine output and degree of hematuria. Antibiotics are also generally recommended for those with higher grade injuries and those with fevers or those who are immunosuppressed. Grade 1 to 3 injuries do not typically require antibiotics. And in patients who are being treated with antibiotics, regimens include first-generation cephalosporins, Cipro, or ampicillin and gentamicin. Generally, grades 4 and 5 injuries require 2 to 3 days of IV antibiotics, followed by an additional 5 days of oral antibiotics. Alright, so let's close this episode out with special populations and then some new technologies. Why don't we start with the pediatric population? Nearly a quarter of all pediatric trauma admissions are due to GU trauma, even though it only makes up a small portion of the total trauma visits. This is due in part to anatomic features, as well as the fact that the history and physical is generally less reliable in the pediatric population. It's also imperative to keep sexual abuse high on the differential in any child presenting with a genital injury. A full exam, often under anesthesia, may be necessary. The next special population is the elderly. Even with similar mechanisms and similar injury severity scores, Elderly patients tend to have more ICU admissions, longer stays, and an increased mortality due to decreased physiologic reserve and pre-existing comorbidities. In terms of the controversies and cutting edge for this month's issue, most revolve around imaging. While MRI is generally becoming more prevalent, it has a limited utility in the GU trauma patient in the ED. It can be considered in those with contrast allergies and those with penile and scrotal injuries. However, ultrasound is still the preferred modality. MRI is never an appropriate imaging study for an unstable patient. Contrast-enhanced ultrasound may also have a role, although further study is still needed. Contrast-enhanced ultrasound has a higher accuracy than conventional ultrasound, but still performs worse than CT. This technology relies on echogenic microbubbles to enhance the ultrasonographic images. All right, so we're in the home stretch here. Let's get back to a few final points on disposition. At a minimum, any patient with GU trauma requires evaluation by a trauma surgeon and or urologist while in the ED. If not immediately available, transfer the patient to a trauma center. As we said before, even minor injuries to the upper GU tract require admission for serial hemoglobin and urine output monitoring. In comparison, superficial injuries to the lower GU tract can likely be safely discharged home. Crush injuries to the scrotum and penis require immediate imaging and urologic evaluation. Those with urethral injuries typically can be managed with an indwelling catheter and prompt urology follow-up. All right, let's finish this episode with a quick summary of high-yield points. Injuries to the GU tract are often subtle and challenging to diagnose. Early detection can avoid lifelong morbidity and mortality. A urinalysis is necessary for any patient with abdominal trauma. A normal urinalysis cannot rule out significant GU injuries. Management trends have skewed greatly over the last few decades with most favoring non-operative and minimally invasive management. CT with IV contrast and delayed imaging is the imaging modality of choice for most GU trauma, with the exception of testicular trauma for which ultrasound is the preferred modality. Even with low-grade renal injuries, most patients with GU trauma will require admission for observation, even if hemodynamically stable. Alright, so that wraps up the August 2017 issue, Emergency Management of Renal and Genitourinary Trauma Best Practice Updates. 
Now that you've finished this episode, don't forget to head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash E0817 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a couple minutes to breeze through the 10 questions there that we should have helped you answer by now. Talk to you all soon.